All right, would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. And so I, we looked at verses 1 and 2 last week. I had intended to get a little farther than that. Not much farther, but a little bit. So we're just going to drop back quickly, gloss over those first two verses, and then move forward with the rest of the text. But before we do that, if you would please join me in beseeching the Lord's mercy here. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We come with gladness and rejoicing. We come with thanksgiving. We come with praise. And we honor you because you're worthy. Full of mercy, full of grace, full of glory. And you give life and you give it abundantly. And we are those who have received grace upon grace. And we gather together in Jesus' name as the body of Christ, sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters. And we come expecting, Lord, hoping that you will minister to each and every one of us, individually and collectively. And we come with great confidence, for you have invited us into your presence. You have invited us to come boldly, to come expectantly. And we do, Father, and we come by faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please you. For we must first believe that you are, that you exist, and that you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And we diligently seek you today, Father. We look for you and your word. And we come, God, with gladness, knowing you will reveal yourself to us through your word more fully. So have your way in here today, Father, and please speak through me. Even in my weakness, God, would you use me for your glory. Holy Spirit, would you please illumine your word to us, open our eyes and our hearts, and change our lives. May we leave here more in love with you today, Father, and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. One of the most unique things about Christianity is the fact that God came to us. God came down to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Most, if not all, religions believe that we must work our way to God. And that's a fact. That's just the way that it is. It's fascinating when you consider just how true and universal that is, that we somehow have to work our way into God's good graces. I think about even Roman Catholicism. They, they would claim to be Christian, yet they believe that our getting into heaven has something to do with our own works, our own righteousness, that God gives us what they call infused righteousness, that is the ability to live righteously to the end, that if we follow all the sacraments carefully, that we will get into purgatory, which is an in-between state between heaven and hell, which is still a place of punishment because we still have sin in us that has to be purified before we can hope to make it into God's presence in heaven. We have no clue how long that will take. And while we're there, loved ones back who are still alive on earth can do things, sacraments, so on and so forth, for us in the hopes of buying more time out of purgatory for us. And so you, you just understand that there's hopelessness really in that. And that's that's legalism. Legalism is somehow thinking that we can do something to the end that it will 
it will earn God's blessing and favor in our lives. That we can be good enough to deserve God's goodness. And so we work and work and work to try to get into God's good grace. And it just doesn't work that way. All the while having no assurance whatsoever where we stand. Many other religions, non-Christian religions, simply believe that it is a matter of doing more good than bad while here on this earth in the hopes that one day when they stand before God, they're going to be able to say they had done more good than bad. And who even knows? I mean, well, we do know. If it were a matter of scales, which side do you think would be uh, the heaviest? If we're all honest, there's no comparison. We do not do more good than bad. And that's just the self-deception of it. So many people think that they do. If you ask people if they thought, where would they go if they were to die right now, they would say they believe they would go to heaven because in the end they feel like they are a good enough person according to their own standards. And so it's all about being good enough. It's all about getting into God's presence because of our own works. And it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. Our works are not working. Our works are not working. You know, many people believe that God is just an impersonal force. He's just a force somewhere out there that he's very far removed. He has nothing to do with us. He's certainly nowhere near us. That he's totally uninterested. If there is this God, it's an impersonal force far removed that has no interest in my life. That's what many people think. And that this force is altogether uninvolved. Uninterested, uninvolved. Well, Jeremiah 23, 23, God says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so that I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. So God is far off. God is near. God is very interested. He's very involved. He's very active. The scriptures are crystal clear about this. One thing we know from the word of God is that God is a self-revealing God. God has made himself known to us. Amen? God sought to reveal himself to us. When we were in no way seeking after God, God sought us out. He revealed himself to us first and foremost through creation initially. Through creation, we understand there is a creator, that this creator is powerful, that he is brilliant, and that he exists outside of time and space. He's eternal. But then God revealed himself to us more fully through the word of God, through the scriptures and the Old Testament and the New and most fully through His Son, Jesus Christ, who has truly come to reveal and demonstrate to us who the Father is and what the Father is like. We know that this God is a personal and loving God. You can know Him. You can know Him. That doesn't mean that we can know everything there is to know about Him. We cannot because He is infinite. But we can know Him personally. We can know Him savingly. We can know Him relationally. And God desires that. God desires that, and he's proven that because he came to us. God came to us. God intervened in our lives, doing for us that which we could not do for ourselves and saving us. God is very involved. Not only did he save us, but he continues to work in our lives. God is very committed. God is far more committed to us than we are to him. And I praise God for that because I'm so fickle. I'm so wishy-washy, I waver. But God does not. 
God does not. He is totally committed. It's extraordinary. And this is what we see in the text. This is what is laid out before us today in verses 1 through 18. That Father God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, down from heaven, God in the flesh, to give to give us light and life, and to reveal the Father to us more perfectly. This is what is in the text before us today. God revealed himself through Jesus in a multifaceted, manifold way. And we take comfort in the fact that our God came to us. This is revolutionary. Revolutionary. God came down. And all of our confidence, all of our hope is in what God has done, not what we have done or could ever do or hope to do. It is all in what God has done. God made the way. God initiated. God intervened. God saves. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. That's what we see. So let me just say before we get into the text, one thing that can be true of um, Eastern writing, um, near Eastern writing, is that they don't always go in a very linear fashion. It's, it's not always one point to the next point to the next point in a very clear and clean fashion. It's almost circular. And so they may hit on a point, then go on to another point, and then come back to this point. And so I don't often do this, but just to kind of make things a little more easy for us to follow, I've kind of rearranged the text that we're going to be looking at today. And so I'll try to explain that as we go, um, but I, I kind of put certain verses in other places because they really fit together neatly that way. And so that will help us, I think, more clearly understand what's going on in the text in front of us. So with that, let's, uh, let's dig in. John chapter 1, verse 1. Make sure i got my timer going here. All right, there we go. So, God has spoken to us by His Son. God came down. God revealed Himself to us. And that's what we're going to see over and over in this text. So point number one, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God, and God has spoken by His Son. God has revealed Himself by His Son. So verse number one, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So as we had talked about last week, in the beginning, when the beginning began, the Word was already there. And who was the Word? Jesus Christ. This was Jesus uh, before he became a man, before he dwelt among us as as a flesh and blood being who was truly man and truly God. This is pre-incarnate Christ, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son. In the beginning was the Word. We're told that the Word was with God. So the Son is equal in essence and glory with the Father, existing together along with the Holy Spirit in perfect unity, perfect love, perfect joy, perfect satisfaction from all of eternity past. The Word was with God. Though the Word, the second person of the Trinity, is truly God, at the same time, He's distinct from God. And as I talked about that last week, Jesus Christ died on the cross, not the Father. You understand? So though they are one, they are one God. We don't believe in three different gods. We are not polytheists. We don't believe in innumerable gods. We believe that there is one God. The Word of God is clear on that. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
Amen? But he's distinctly three different persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has been eternally existent. He stepped down into time and space at a particular time when it was the Father's will for him to do so, to fulfill the mission of the Father. This is our Christ. He's glorious. He is God. He is eternal. He is Trinity. And we're told that all things were made through him. The Son is the agent of creation. God created through the Son. Colossians 1.15 tells us this very thing. And so we know that in the beginning, God created. John 1, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. And what's fascinating to me about this, as I have already stated, God revealed himself to us in many ways through creation. So even as Jesus, the word of God, created all things, he communicated much about the Father to us, even through creation. So it's always been the nature of the Son to reveal the Father. It's always been the nature of the Son as the Word of God, as the very communication of who God is, as the very expression of who the Father is. Amen? If you drop down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this Word, the Word, the eternally existent One who was God yet with God became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on flesh. So Jesus, who has always existed as God in glory, He did not empty Himself of His deity, but He took on flesh. He took on a human nature. Now, I I say that because there is, uh, right now, contemporary... Christianity movements who would say that Jesus divested himself of his deity and just became a man. It's called the kenosis theory. He emptied himself of his godness, and he was nothing more than a man here on earth who was operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason they say this is because they would try to put us on the same level with Jesus and say we can do all the things that Jesus did because he was no more than we humans empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's false. If Jesus ceased to be God for even a nanosecond, he was never God at all. You understand? And so it's not that he became less than, he took on an additional nature. He became both truly God and at the same time truly human so that he could live a perfect life in obedience to God's law and then die the death that we deserve on our behalf as a true representative of humanity. That's the God-man. That's the glories of the God-man. And that's what we have. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. He was in the midst of His people. God came down and dwelt amongst His people. That word dwelt there, it's to pitch a tent or to live in a tent is what it means. And it's, it's denoting much more than mere general, the general notion of dwelling. Um, for the Christian, it is dwelling in intimate communion with the resurrected Christ, even as he who himself lived in unbroken communion with the Father during the days of his flesh, he dwelt in the midst of his people in communion and love. This is a theme all throughout the Bible. God came down and dwelt in the midst of his people there in the tabernacle in the days of their wilderness wanderings. 
Jesus came down and dwelt amongst his people. Revelation 21, 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So God is all about dwelling in the midst of his people. And God has done that through Jesus Christ, his son. John said he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory to behold the glory of the son. This word to behold, it's an it's a interesting word, but it means to gaze at a spectacle. To gaze or to contemplate as a spectator to observe intently, to grasp the significance. It's not just a passing glance. It is to be struck by something with such awe, to concentrate on it to the point that you are significantly impacted by it. John said, the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. We beheld His glory. Our eyes, our heart, we were fixed upon Him and it changed us forever, forever changed. To behold the glory of the Son. To behold His glory. And that's been the cry of so many people throughout the Bible. I think of David. He said, One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. To behold the beauty of the Lord. To gaze upon His glory. What did Moses say? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. To look upon, to gaze upon the beauty of our Savior, the one who dwelt among his people to gaze upon His goodness, to gaze upon His kindness, and to be ever changed by that glory. It's wonderful, isn't it? John said, we experience this. We experience this, and we do too, as we gaze upon the Son through the Word of God, through the Word that has been delivered to us. If you look at verse 18 in chapter 1 there, it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen the Father, for He is Spirit. God is Spirit. And He, he cannot be seen. But the only begotten Son, this, uh, in, his, in His bosom, obviously we don't use that word so much. That's, that's kind of, I think, outdated language, if you will, but it means in the Father's arms. It's translated in the Father's arms one, in one sense or by the Father's side. It speaks of close and personal intimacy. The Son who is in the Father's arms. The Son who is eternally by the Father's side. He has declared the Father to us. He has revealed the Father to us. He has made known the Father to us. It's interesting, this word declared, it says that he declared. 
It's the same word in the Greek that we would get the word exegesis from. And so exegesis is the process whereby I take a passage of Scripture and break it down and explain to you the inner workings of it so that you can understand it more clearly. It's called exegesis. That's what Jesus has done for us of the Father. He has explained the Father to us. He has made the Father known to us more fully. He has made the Father more clear so that we can know Him better. Jesus, the Word of God, came down and revealed the truth of God. He revealed the truth of God. You with me? This making sense to you? Good. This brings us to our next point. Point number one, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. God is spoken by His Son. Point number two, Jesus Christ is the light of God. Jesus Christ is the light of God. Now, under point number two, if you're taking notes, I have an A, B, C, and D. All right? So, Jesus Christ is the light of God. A, we see the overwhelming force of the light. The overwhelming force of the light. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This statement is so significant. In him was life. This is um, for theologians, if you're a student of theology, the word aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It is the, the self-sufficiency of the Son. He has life in himself, and he doesn't have to go outside of himself for life. Only, that can only be said of God. God alone has life in himself. We have to go outside of ourselves for everything, whether it's air, whether it's food and water, whether it's relationships, which we all need desperately. Uh, for truth, we have to go outside of ourselves for all of these things. Some people try to say that we can go inward for truth. That's a flat-out lie from the pit of hell. We have to go outside of ourselves. We have to go to the one in whom life truly dwells, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't need anything. Jesus gives. Jesus gives. Jesus already had life in himself, and Jesus distributes life to men. And I love that. Jesus is not some needy God. I mean, we, we really get it twisted. We really think and even sing songs about how desperately God needed us. He was just up there in heaven. You know, the Father, he just got kind of sick of the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And he said, you know, you guys, I need somebody else to kick it with for a little while. I need a break. So I'm going to create some people over here. And I'm just going to be so into them. You know, we really think, man, he's just into us. And it's all about me. And it, it all revolves around me. We can get kind of crazy with that stuff. You know, it, it goes so far as to start portraying you're, you ever heard the Jesus is my boyfriend stuff, you know, like it's just Jesus is just so into me and he's so in love with me and the songs that we sing can get so almost cringy. I'm not talking about the songs we sing here, Pastor Joe, so sorry, don't trip. Um, 
But I heard a pastor at another church say, he was like, man, these songs that we sing, he says, sometimes I don't know if I am worshiping Jesus or running my fingers through his beard. That was a little edgy, I know. And it made me, I was like, oh, man. Uh, but I get it. I get what he's saying. And so we got to make sure that we have, we understand Jesus correctly. We need to make sure that we understand Jesus according to the Word of God. And in him was life. He has need of nothing. He gives life. And the life that he gives is the light of men, the Bible says. He is full of truth, knowledge, wisdom, and holiness. And he gives it to us freely. Um, one commentator, I, I suppose his name is pronounced Kostenberger, he says, Life and light and darkness continue to draw on Genesis motifs. Against this background, Jesus as the light brings to this dark world true knowledge, moral purity, and the light that shows the very presence of God. Jesus Christ is the life, and He is the light. As the Son of God, He gives life and light to men. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Man, isn't that beautiful? That's That's spectacular. That's glorious. Only Paul could pull the gospel out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I mean, that's, that's amazing to me. The light shines in the darkness. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, the very life and light of God, saw fit to shine in our hearts. The light shines in the darkness. You know, darkness, oftentimes, it, it speaks of things like ignorance, deception, wickedness. But when the light of Jesus shined into the midst of that, the darkness did not comprehend it. That is to say that it could not overcome the light. The light overwhelmed the darkness. That's what is meant by that did not comprehend in the New King James. There is no darkness that our Savior cannot shine into. Praise God. Amen? I thank God that the light of God's grace through His Son Jesus did shine into the darkness that was my wretched life. There's no darkness that our Savior cannot overcome and overwhelm. Our Savior has the power over darkness and spiritual forces. Hell may shriek with all of its fury, but it cannot overcome the overwhelming power of the light of our Savior. It cannot. He has power over the spiritual forces. Our Savior has power over the darkness of sin. The power of sin. You know, we've been rescued from the penalty of sin. We've been rescued from the power of sin. One day we will be rescued from the very presence of sin because of our great Savior. Our Savior has the power over the darkness of ignorance and deception of which there is much in this world. This very dark world. Our Savior can shine the light right into that. Our Savior has power over the darkness of death itself. He overcame the grave. In Him is life, and the grave could not hold Him down. He gave His life freely for sinful men and women, and then He took His life back in victory over death. Amen?
That is the overwhelming power. That is the force of the light of God and His Son. B, God did give testimony to the light of His Son. Look at verse 6 with me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. So there was a man sent from God. This is John the Baptist. Not John the Apostle, John the Baptist. And this John has been foretold even in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40 verse 3 and Malachi 3 verse 1. Both prophesy of the coming of the forerunner, John the Baptist, who would declare that God was coming, God in the flesh. Jesus even said of this one that he was the greatest prophet of all. You know, all the prophets of old, many of them spoke of the coming of the Christ, not even fully understanding what they were talking about, Peter tells us. But this prophet was the very one who on the scene declared that the Son of God is here. He's in our midst. The Son of God has come. I mean, what a privilege of all the prophets to have that ministry. He was indeed the forerunner of Christ. God witnessed to His own Son by sending this witness to point the way. And we may know him as John the Baptist, and he is. He was a baptizer, to be sure. But more than that, John was a witness. John witnessed to the coming of the Son of God. And when he came, he witnessed to the world the Son has come. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold him. Behold him. Behold the Lamb. Morris, one commentator, says, The matter of witness is a serious thing establishing truth and giving ground for faith. Yet witness does more. It commits a man. If I take my stand in the witness box and testify that such and such is the truth of the matter, I am no longer neutral. I have committed myself. John lets us know that there are those like John the Baptist who have committed themselves by their witness to Christ. Are you a witness? God did witness to His Son through John the Baptist. And that is our great privilege now, to witness of the Son to others. To understand ourselves as witnesses, we are committed. We are not neutral. We have seen. We have experienced. We have beheld the glory of the Son. There's no turning back. And there's no denying it. We are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? And we are witnesses to the truth. There's um, a young lady. She was in my youth group in Tennessee before I moved here. And she was uh, the pastor's daughter and uh, Angelica, a sweet, sweet young lady. And so uh, she was just coming into the youth group as I left and, and came here. And so now she's in college. She just went off to college. It's her first year. And she's um, in a, uh, it's a Division I school there in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, UT, and uh, she uh, is going to law school. Well, she got accepted into this uh, program. They're big on volunteering, and she got accepted into this little uh, organization where they, they serve and volunteer and learn about leadership training and all, all that kind of stuff. And so there were like 700 people in this group. 
So one of the first things that they did, they got the group together, and they all had to write out what are their core values in their lives. And so everybody made their little list, and then they had to start um, kind of chipping away at their list until they came down to the one most important thing in their lives. And so out of all 700 of the people in that group, and then they had to stand up in front of the group and say what theirs was, she was the only one that said Jesus Christ was the most important thing to her in the group. I was so proud to hear that. That was a, a real witness. Well, after that, everybody got a piece of yarn, and they had to throw their yarn on the person that most impacted them. And she got covered with everybody's yarn because there were a lot of other people there who loved Jesus, and they were too afraid to say it in front of the group. And they were so impacted by the fact that she boldly stood for Jesus Christ. And I just thought, that's amazing. You know, that's incredible. What a witness. She was in my youth group. I was her youth pastor. Okay? But that's, that's what it's all about, man. God, because even as I was hearing that story, I'm thinking 700 kids in college. I mean, what would we do in a situation like that? You know, that's, that's amazing to me, to be a witness like that, to be a witness to the light. And, and, and to what end? To what end did John witness to the Son that all might believe? That through him all might believe. That was the goal of God's witness to his Son. People would hear the preaching of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God. As the Spirit of God came down and touched the heart of a wretched sinner who saw the light and believed in Jesus Christ. That's the goal of the witness. Verse 8 says, He was not that light. John was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness to the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So John the Baptist was not the light. It was not the John the Baptist show. John's going to come back into the story a little later, uh, and so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but man, this brother really set the standard of making it all about Jesus. You know, this is not the Rob Rainey show. Glory to Christ. Calvary Chapel, you know, it's, it's the fire of our hearts here in Napa to exalt Christ, to point people to Him, to see Him receive honor, glory, and praise. He's the one who died for us, not me. I didn't die for you. We didn't die for each other. All glory to the one who died and rose again. Amen? John the Baptist had that. He wasn't the light. He didn't try to be the light. He pointed others to the light, the true light, which gives light to every man. That is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. Skip ahead just a little bit, verse 15. It says, John bore witness of him, and he cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So John says of Jesus that he comes after me. And that is because Jesus is about six months, um, he is about six months younger than John. And so John's a little older. Uh, John came onto the scene a little bit earlier than Jesus. His ministry began just a little bit earlier than Jesus' public ministry. So it could be said that John came before Jesus. But then this interesting statement, he says, but he's preferred before me. And that, that word literally it means to rank, to outrank. Jesus outranked John the Baptist. Why? He said, because he was before me. 
John understood that there was something so much more special about Jesus. He knew who he was talking about. God had made that clear, and he understood that Jesus was eternal. That before John was even born, Jesus, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, existed already. And so he said, even though I came on the scene before him, he outranks me because he pre-exists me. He is the light. He is the Lamb. So truly, John did testify to the light. See regarding Jesus as the light of God, there was a great rejection of the light. The light did shine, many did reject it. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Imagine that. Jesus came into the very world that He created. Jesus came into the very world that He created. He came to his own people, and his people didn't even recognize him. They missed it. They were blind. They were blind. You know, you can, you, can, um, you can look at something and not really see it. One of my, my professor was telling a story about this very thing. He said, you know, his dad, there was a, a church business meeting. You might not know like, certain churches the whole congregation would get together and vote and decide about official matters of the church. And so the dad came into um, the gathering just a little bit later. It was already happening. His wife was on the back row, uh, a few rows from the back. And so he sits down and wanting to, uh, for whatever reason, just kind of make a little, little scene. He, he uh, sits down by his wife and puts his arm around her and just kisses her. And he's thinking that she's going to be you know, just all giggles and smiling, but she was glaring at him. She had this uh, total glare, and he didn't understand what was happening. Uh, well, he kind of recognized after a moment that he, she was wearing a wig, and he had knocked her wig off, and it was on the Bible of the person behind her. And he didn't even realize, he was looking at his wife and didn't realize that she didn't have her, her wig on. He was, he was looking but not seeing. And, you know, we... We can do that. You know, the Son of God came into the midst of His people, and they were looking, but they didn't see. Looking, but they didn't see. They didn't know who was in their midst. They didn't recognize that the very one who had created the world, the very one who had created them, had come, and He was in their midst. And He was rejected by the very people that He came to save. The Creator was rejected by His creation. And why? Because that is in the hearts of men and women. That is our heart outside of Christ and apart from Him. We reject the light. The Bible is very clear on that. John 3.17 says, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. The Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath, that we are dead in our trespass and sin, that we are children of the devil, that our hearts are desperately sick and wicked, and we can't even know the half of it. It's bad. Gen Genesis 6 describes mankind as, as just the thoughts and the intents of their heart are just wicked continually because of sin. Because we are all born into this world 
of the line of Adam and Eve, we are born into this world as rebels to God, sinners, dead, and separated from a holy God, and who will have to answer to a holy God one day. And that's evident. It's evident in our lives. What comes natural to us? It's sin. It's rejection. It's rebelliousness. It's hard-heartedness. Such that when the light came into the world, the light was rejected because men love the darkness rather than light. Paul describes this for us in Romans chapter 1. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. So the truth is being stuffed down and then a lid is being put on it. That's what it means to suppress. It's to, to, to block your, your ears and your eyes and to ignore and to reject and to stuff down the truth. God's righteousness, God's wrath, rather, is being revealed against such unrighteousness. Paul goes on and says that because what could be known about God, it's been revealed to them because God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse. What Paul is saying here is the very thing I said earlier in the message, that through creation, much has been revealed to us about God. We know there's a creator. We know that there is someone outside of creation who has done all of this. But what does man do with that? Even that knowledge, what did man do with it? Paul says in verse 21, Though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Neither were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. So there was enough to know that there is a God who created but what did man do with that knowledge? They worshiped the creation. Started worshiping the sun and the moon and, and cows and alligators and creeping things and bugs and making all kinds of grotesque images out of wood and stone and, and so on. That's what man does with the knowledge that is given him of God. Rejects the truth of God and worships God's creation. Worships the creation rather than the creator. And how many of us, are we not all guilty of this? Do we not worship the creation are we not by nature idol makers? Do we not bow the knee to so many other lesser things than God? Can we not all relate, understand, and recognize that this is us? That apart from the grace of God, this is our propensity? This is our proclivity. This is what we are prone to. Verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up to their uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. But for the grace of God, that's who we are. That's what we are. That's why the light came into the world and the light was rejected. That's a, that's a fearful thing, is it not? That's an, that's an awful thing. That's a terrible thing. To think that the light was in their midst and they didn't see it. They were looking, but they didn't see it. Which brings us to the, the good part, the good news. D, the acceptance of the light. The acceptance of the light, verse 12. But as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So many did receive Christ. Many have. This word receive here, it's to open your heart. It's to open your arms. It's to embrace with all that you have. The light came and many rejected the light, but many received the light. They believed on the name of Jesus Christ. And to them were given the, the authority, the right, the gift of being called children of God. Amen? That's glorious. But then this, it says, they were born not by the will of man, because man is by nature ignorant, obstinate, recalcitrant. You like that word? I just learned that. I was like, I can use that word. Recalcitrant. That's a $5 word if there ever was one. It's obstinate, hard-hearted, prone to reject. See, that's, that's, that's man. So if you are born into the newness of life, if you believe on Jesus Christ, it's because God did that. You weren't born by the will of man. John says here, you're born by the will of God. To those who received him and were given the right to be called children of God, were born by the will of God. It's a sovereign work of the Father who calls and draws and saves for the glory of His name and for the glory of His Son and for the mercy and the sake of His people. And we know this. We were in no way seeking after God. God sought us out. Much like Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul, was he seeking after God? He was doing the very opposite of that. He was killing Christians. God sought him out. God stopped him there on the road, struck him down, struck him with blindness, he surrendered that day to the sovereign will of God. He was given the right. He was given the privilege. He was given the authority to be called a child of God that day. Such was the graciousness of God. Such was the will of God. That ought to drive us to a place of humility. God saved us. God chose you. God called you from darkness into light. God lavished blessing and love and life upon you in Jesus Christ. Because such was his glorious and gracious will. It wasn't me. It was all him. Amen? It wasn't you. It was all him. You believed because that was the will of God. You believed unto life. Praise God that he does that. And you know what that is, folks? You know what that's called? The grace of God. The grace of God. I didn't do it. I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. God in his grace sought me out and saved me. And that leads us to our third and final point. Jesus Christ is the grace and the truth of God. Jesus Christ is the grace and the truth of God. Look at verse 16. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is full of grace, and of His fullness we have all received. We have all received. Grace for grace. I like this. Grace for grace, it, it literally means grace instead of grace. And um, I think kind of the idea there is that for every bit of grace that we might use, if you will, 
there's more grace to follow. Just grace for grace, grace upon grace, grace instead of grace. It's inexhaustible grace. You cannot exhaust the grace of God. It's unending. It's limitless because God himself is infinite. There is no end. And so who God is, what God has, what God gives never stops. Isn't that amazing? And through his son, we have received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. He says the law came through Moses. The law came through Moses. You know, Jesus Christ has revealed many things to us about the Father, as we have already seen. But you know what? Moses revealed something to us about the Father. Do you know what Moses revealed? Moses revealed God as the lawgiver and righteous judge to whom we have to give an account. The one who is so very terrifying that we don't even want to approach the very presence lest we die. That's what Moses revealed. I'll just read to you Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. It says, Then it came to pass that on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. This is Mount Sinai. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Just imagine this awesome scene, this towering mountain. The presence of God is there, manifest. And there is lightning and thunder and smoke and this trumpet, and the people are shaking, literally trembling at this this terrible sight. Verse 17, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon the Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. Is that not an awesome scene? The terror of God, the holiness of God, the unapproachability of God. Exodus 20, verse 18 says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Take note of that. They stood way back. They didn't want to get close to that mountain. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. So that is the the holiness. That is the righteousness. That is the terror of an almighty judge who is perfectly blazing holy. And we are but sinners who love the darkness rather than the light, who dare not even approach the presence of God. See, God did reveal that of himself to us because this is true of God. We have to understand that. You can't appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't appreciate the gift of God's grace until you understand the wrath of a holy God to whom we all have to give an account. Does that make sense? If you don't know that you have to answer one day to a holy and a just God who will judge your sin and your wickedness, my sin, my wickedness, this is true of all of us, You have to know that. You have to know that. And when you know that, when you are confronted with the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God saves sinners through His Son, you will appreciate that because you know the terror of having to answer to an almighty, holy, wrathful God. And so God revealed that of Himself through Moses to us, that God is a law giver, He is a righteous judge, He is one to whom we do not want to approach. We don't want to approach Him. We say, you go, Moses, we'll stay back lest we die. See, they were terrified to approach the righteous lawgiver lest they die. But you know what's so amazing about God and the grace of God? God sent His own Son to die for us so that we could freely approach God's throne. They didn't want to approach God lest they die. So God's Son died so that we could all graciously, freely, and boldly approach Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the glory and the grace of God and His Son, Jesus Christ? God's Son died so that we could draw near. See, that's the grace of God. That's the truth of God. That's Jesus, full of grace and truth. That is Jesus through whom we receive grace upon grace upon grace. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. God saved us there at the cross. God sent His Son to bear the wrath of God so that God's wrath could be paid, paid for, satisfied, dealt with, if you will, on His Son so that we would no longer be the recipients of God's wrath. Instead, we would be the recipients of God's love and mercy because Jesus died in our stead, took the wrath that we deserved upon Himself as our substitute, And then graciously gave us His righteousness. See, we're not infused with righteousness. I talked about that. The the Catholic Church, we are imputed. It is given to us. It is accounted to us. It is accredited to us. We have the righteousness of Christ because He gave it to us as a gift. That's the grace of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you would yet trust on Jesus and believe on the finished work of the cross, you will have everlasting life. God is no longer a God of terror, one to be feared, one who will most certainly judge. He is a loving Heavenly Father. He is a loving Heavenly Father to whom we can draw near, to whom we can have close, intimate fellowship, the God who dwells amongst His people. And that's what we see in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll read this text. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us, through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. See, God could not be approached. To go into the deepest part of the temple where God's presence would manifest once a year, you had to go through this veil. And only the high priest could go only one time a year, and it was a terrifying thing even for him to do. But Jesus Christ died, and while on the cross, that very veil was torn. And what that meant was we now have access to the Father. He's no longer a righteous and holy judge who is going to judge us, but he is a loving Heavenly Father who has welcomed us in. He says, welcome. He says, draw near. Come into the holiest place. Come into my presence. My throne is a throne of grace for you because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Verse 22 says, Therefore let us draw near. 
with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, that's the grace and truth of God revealed to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, the light of God, the grace of God. God did that. And because God himself drew near to us, now we can draw near to him. And that's why we draw near, because God first drew near to us, because God saved us in his son, Jesus Christ, because God revealed himself through his son, because God has given us the right to be children of God through his son, because God opened the way and made the way clear for us to have access to him boldly with confidence and love.